Well, brothers and sisters and young people, after spending two uh, nights in preparation for for this uh, for our study on the Song of Solomon, we're finally tonight going to get down to the song itself. We're going to deal, God willing, with the uh, with the first song, which has been read for us tonight, which actually takes us to verse eight of the first chapter. I uh, hope you've all got your thinking caps on too, because I'm going to try and make it informal where I can and. Uh, uh, perhaps ask some questions and get our minds ticking over and operating because it's a very beautiful book as we've already pointed out but it's one which because it is so spiritual gives us a wonderful scope to think out the and to follow out the principles that are found in the book. So we come to verse 1 of chapter 1 and we find in the introduction to the book that it is the Song of Songs which is Solomon's. Of course, we've already pointed out that um, it's the signature of the book. It tells us that Solomon was the author. Now, this phrase, Song of Songs, is a, is a very interesting one. The, um, firstly, the word itself, song, we're told by Parkhurst in his lexicon, can mean a string of pearls. You won't find that in the Strongs, but you'll find it in some of the other lexicons, including Parkhurst, that it means a string of pearls. The idea being that it's a putting together of a song or a poem which is made up of parts. And as a, a string of pearls is linked together, so the ideas are linked together in a song or a poem. It's a very beautiful phrase to use for this book because that's exactly what it is. It is a string of pearls. And we might liken each of these songs, and there are 12 of them in the book, each of them to a pearl. And they are very beautifully woven together uh, to make, we might say, a necklace. So it is a song of songs. If you were to pick up a concordance, and all of you I think would have at some stage tried to look up a concordance and looked at uh, not only a concordance but perhaps most of the aids that we have in on scripture, if we picked them up and tried to look up a quote in Song of Solomon, it wouldn't be down as Song of Solomon. What would it be down as? Can. Can, yeah, can't or C-A-N. Who reads C-A-N or C-A-N-T. Anybody tell me what that's abbreviated for? Canticles, right, Canticles. What's Canticles? You know, what? Yeah, well, can, yeah, Canticles is the, is the Latin word for songs. All right, so it comes out of, again, it's, a, it's the overflow of the influence of the Catholic Church um, because as we find so often in Scripture in the translation of the Scriptures. So it's the Latin Canticles for a song. So, therefore, when you come to... To, uh, to many of the, um, the lexicons and so forth you'll find it down as C-A-N or C-A-N-T referring to canticles um, but we'll stick of course with the, uh, uh, with the title as it is here The Song of Songs in the combination of those two words together Song of Songs it is of course the way in which the Hebrew would emphasise a point it emphasises it by repeating it um, again just to get our minds working think of any others in scripture where else would we find two words together used to emphasise a point Lord of Lords. yeah Lord of Lords that's a good one yeah Samuel Samuel yeah well that would be the same it's a repeat to make it important verily verily in the New Testament uh, it's used quite, quite extensively through the scripture to link two things together um, and it's to emphasise the importance of it. It's why uh, when we started these studies we gave out the title to our first study as a superlative song because that's the idea is that when thing is linked together like that it's superlative, it's above everything else, it's very, very great. 
the the um, one of the uh, well-known phrases in the New Testament, of course, would be "Holy of Holies." Now that would emphasise it as well. Now that's an interesting title because, in fact, the the rabbis, the Jewish writers, have a saying about the Book of Song of Solomon. They say all of the Old Testament is holy, but the Song of Solomon is the holy of holies. And it's a beautiful phrase when you think about it because it is the book that transports us into the Holy of Holies. Because when we read in this chapter that he has brought me into his chambers and she desires to go into his innermost chambers, um, we are of course reminded that in the tabernacle there are the different areas and what we, we are in the outer chamber now waiting to go into the inner chamber into the most holy place. And that's really what the Song of Solomon is all about. So I think it's a very beautiful expression of what the book is. That if all the scripture is, uh, is holy, then this is the holy of holies. I want to read to you as a summary of the book of the songs, the preface that used to occur in the very old Bibles back in Elizabethan times, we're talking sort of mid-1500s into the early 1600s. The copy of the Bible which was extant in the time of Queen Elizabeth I had a very beautiful summary of the book in the beginning. I'll read it and I might, but some of you might like it that much you want a copy I haven't made a copy of it but you can get it from me afterwards but it very beautifully sums up what the book what this song is all about in this song Solomon by the most sweet and comfortable allegories and parables described the perfect love between Jesus Christ the true Solomon and King of Peace and the faithful of his church which he sanctified and appointed to be his spouse holy, chaste and without reprehension so here is declared the singular love of the bridegroom towards the bride and his great and excellent benefits wherewith he doth enrich her and his his pure bounty and grace without any of her deservings also the earnest affection of the church which is inflamed with the love of Christ desiring to be more and more joined to him in love and not to be forsaken for any spot or blemish that is in her. Now that, when we come to the end of the book, and you, you've got an opportunity to reflect on that, it's a very, very beautiful summary, because it's, it picks up the point that it is an allegory or a, a symbol of the Bride of Christ, Solomon representing the Lord Jesus Christ, and speaks of his ardent love for her, her love for him, and the Bride recognising her immense privilege of being his Bride. So it's a very good summary, as we said, that's found in the preface uh, to the Bible in the Elizabethan times. So it's a song of songs and it's Solomon's. Now the other thing we might say about songs is that the word here in the Hebrew can be used for either poem or a song that is sung. There's several words for song in the Hebrew and this one um, uh, has, can double for either and we would believe that in the Song of Solomon it would have been perhaps more the latter than the former it would have been a poem rather than a song to be sung but whether it be either of those two I think it's well worthwhile remembering that we do talk of poetic license we use that phrase today and it's something to be remembered when we look at this book it is a poem therefore it is going to be in a sense what we would say exaggerated allowable by the Spirit but nevertheless exaggerated in its terminology in our readings I don't know whether it was just last week or week before time gets away from us but uh, in our readings from Samuel recently we did um, one of the Psalms of David it's in Samuel uh, it's at the time of Absalom and he writes a Psalm to Yahweh 
And when we read that, I said to Geraldine, there's another good example of a poem. Because in the Jewish, the poetry exaggerates. So that it talks, for instance, of Yahweh opening his mouth and, and thunder for, uh, utters forth from it. Uh, lightning flashing from his eyes. Things which are not literally true. But in the sense of poetic license, it's allowed. And is, is to express the, the spiritual point behind what is being said. Now the Song of Solomon is like that. We used the analogy before and I think we've got to bear it in mind all the time that we are talking of both a poem and a Jewish poem at that which means that it is very extensive. A Jew is noted for his, if you like, long-windedness but his, his uh, expressions and how that he, takes a long, he would take a long time to answer a question. He'll give you more than what you actually ask for in detail and that's what the book really brings out so that we bear these things in mind as we have a look at this Song of Songs. Now, of course, we're probably all aware that, that um, it is recorded of, the, uh, of Solomon that he wrote 1,005 songs. That's in the first of Kings chapter 4 and verse 32. It's probably worth putting alongside if you've got your notes open. And by the way, that's what we gave you that uh, set of notes for. So you've got the chapter there and you can open it up. Um, and alongside that first phrase there, Song of Songs, you can put a thousand, one, of, one of the, probably one of, but the greatest of the 1005 that's found in the first of Kings chapter 4 verse 32. That of course is the section that tells us that uh, Solomon was very wise and he went on and, and uh, knew all about uh, nature. He knew of the birds, he knew of the flowers, he knew of the trees and he wrote 1005 songs. This is, out of those 1005, the song of songs. It's the greatest one of them all. Greatest of course because it deals with love. Anybody pick up a quote straight away from, from that that we could put alongside it? In fact, I don't think I've even got it down here, but just thought of it then. If I said that song, love was the greatest of them all, where would your mind go to? Corinthians. First Corinthians chapter 12, isn't it? 11, 12. Yes, First Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Therefore abideth faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. And therefore, it's quite right that it can be a superlative song, a song of songs, because its theme is love, the greatest theme that's found in Scripture. It is, of course, as we mentioned before, it makes it a spiritual book, a very highly spiritual book, and in parallel with perhaps parallel with the books of John in the New Testament, which are on that same theme, and are looked at, therefore, as very spiritual books. And it's Solomon's. Now we've pointed out, we've spent a lot of time on it, we don't want to go back over that, but we spent some time showing that Solomon is the suitable type. Uh, very suitable because of, of his position. Um, I've got just two quotes there which spell out that very strongly. Matthew 12 verse 42, which we turned up last time, in which the Lord Jesus Christ of course, is, of course likens himself to Solomon and says that the greater of Solomon is here. And the second of Samuel 12, particularly verses 24 and 25, where of course uh, Yahweh says of Samuel, uh, of, of Solomon, I loved him and gave him the name Jedidiah, the beloved of Yah. Very suitable is Solomon for the, the writing of these songs. Now, as we've already pointed out, we feel it's based upon his love for his Egyptian bride. It is interesting that of his Egyptian bride, we've already pointed out that she was the one who had that very privileged position of actually being with him. Um, and I want you to come just to the first of Kings chapter 3 verse 1, something we didn't mention before about this, but um, I believe there's an inference here that she is very special in many ways. 
in the first of Kings chapter 3 and verse 1 in the readings that we had a couple of nights ago um, Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh it says in verse 1 king of Egypt and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of Yahweh and the wall of Jerusalem round about that word until there is interesting what is it referring to there is a suggestion that can refer to to one or two or more things this we do know as we pointed out from later on in the chapter chapter 7 I think it is that he built after he had finished the temple he built a room a, a porch or a house for himself and one for this bride identical to his own out of cedar so <clears throat> maybe he's saying simply here that he brought her into the city of David where she she was a, a separate until he'd made her a house but it is, has very strong suggestions that he didn't marry the girl at this time that he in fact left off marrying her until he built the temple in other words he got his priorities right and the until there is referring to the fact that he made her his bride now we know that it was some years later before he actually was to take on any other women and of course that's mentioned in chapter 11 and verse 1 that he had a thousand wives and concubines um, and that was well into to his, uh, his reign uh, it was about four years I think wasn't it for memory three or four years for the building of the temple to the time that we come to chapter uh, 7 where he actually builds his house and the house for this wife uh, this bride if in fact he didn't marry her till then the type is very beautiful because this would be her time of probation and she was selected by Solomon in chapter 3 verse 1 but was not married until the time that the, king, the, the temple was built now that's a beautiful type if it be so of the bride in the Song of Solomon because the spiritual type of course is that exactly that we are called by the Lord Jesus Christ as his betrothed bride separated in his outer chamber waiting to be brought into our own house in the age to come at the time when the temple is built so it would fit very very well if that were the case one of the added points that would seem to add to that is I don't know whether any of you realise this but you sort of probably picked it up in the readings that night when we did the first Kings chapter 3 but in verse 7 he calls himself a little child and the Hebrew word there tells us that he would have been no, no older than 17 years of age he would have been 15 to 17 years of age when he started to reign a 15 year old is a very young lad that um, to become king but a very young lad of course and perhaps would have added to the fact that he would have left this marriage until a couple of years later till he was at a, at a, uh, a more reasonable age for, for marriage but I think myself I would personally feel that he did leave it till then and that's what we're being told here by that word until because firstly Solomon and we're told very clearly in that chapter 1st Kings 3 that his mind was totally centred on Yahweh at that time and uh, therefore he was not going to be um, be uh, put off or neither was he going to be distracted by married life at that time realising that even under the law the law allowed for when a man got married that for 12 months he did no work um, and he never went out to war and Solomon possibly following that principle would have taken the girl and kept her in Jerusalem until he built the house for her and that marriage took place then we've got no real proof for it but wouldn't it be beautiful if that was the case because he is the type and that's the one that he's basing his comments upon 
a bride whom he was betrothed to, brought into his chamber in in Jerusalem, we're told there in chapter 3 and verse 1, brought into the city of David, uh, but not given her proper place until later on when the temple is built. So, um, that quotation, anyway, the First Kings 3 verse 1, is, as we said, very important to put down there alongside uh, the, the, uh, this chapter to show us that we believe that that's the bride that uh, this is based upon. Interesting, of course, too, when we reflect on it, that the daughter of Pharaoh, there is no mention, and yet there is a very extensive list in that chapter, about chapter 11, of the gods who uh, Solomon made um, as altars for and that he allowed his wives to worship. Not one of them is Egyptian. The one nation that's not mentioned that he built an altar to was the Egyptian gods. And that is significant. That I would, I would presume from that that the daughter of Pharaoh was in fact a true proselyte. And I believe Psalm 45, well not everybody does, but I believe Psalm 45 was based upon that marriage and of course she's there depicted as one who left her family and became a proselyte to the Jewish faith. And uh, so she would seem to be, from all the indications, a very faithful wife and one who clave unto Yahweh. He certainly is not listed amongst those who sought after their previous gods. So a very suitable type perhaps in her also for the bride that is going to be mentioned in Song of Solomon. And so with that introduction now, the first song begins from verses 2 to 8. Now we've got a summary of that in your set of notes that you, you received and I'll just run through that firstly so that we get the sense of what this is talking about. Then we'll come back and we'll look more closely at the verses. That way if we don't finish all the verses we'll at least tonight have got a general idea of what this first song is about and we can just continue on of course with our, with our deeper study of the words uh, in future classes. Song 1 you'll notice uh, on the first page of your, uh, your notes there uh, we've got the chapter 1 verse 1 there listed as just the superlative song, the song of songs. We haven't got a heading here, but if you've got a pencil or pen, it would be a good idea to write across the top of Song 1, The Chosen Bride, because that's the title we've given it. It doesn't appear until the back of your notes where the marking is set out for the colour coding. But that's the title for this song, The Chosen Bride. So you'd write that across there uh, between where it says Section 1 and those verses. And if you like while you're writing, you can write it also at Song 7, which is over the page, because that's your parallel song. So the parallel song with the Gentile section is the same, we've given the same title, The Chosen Bride. The emphasis upon her choice by the groom and her, some of her qualities are brought out as well. So our first song and our seventh song uh, have the title, The Chosen Bride. Now this first song... In verses 1 to 2 you've got the bride's affection for her beloved and she talks about her beloved and she expresses that he is a very special person who, um, who she loves very dearly and whose name itself is worth worshipping. That there is a name that this one bears that is all important. She brings it out in the first two verses as she talks about her beloved, the king who has brought her into his chambers. And in verse 4 then she goes on to desire his company and she says I want to be with him. You see she's been closeted off into the, into the bridal chamber preparing for her wedding and she would desire to see him. And so she is asking, she is talking about him and she makes this comment that she would desire his company. And then there becomes a dialogue between her and her bridesmaids. So that in that same verse 
her bridesmaids tell her that when she asked that the groom would draw her to him and they, the bridesmaids uh, in all their faithfulness to her said we'll go with you we'll follow you and then she appreciates her privilege she talks about being brought into the king's chambers but she expresses humility in verse 5 and she says I really am not worthy of the king who's taken me on black and of course the bridesmaids answer back and so in verse 5 there's this again a dialogue between the bridesmaids and the bride as she, she humbles herself and talks of her humility and the bridesmaids lift her up and say no there are good qualities there that the groom has seen and so they appreciate her and they tell her that and in verse 6 she then goes on to talk about herself and she talks about the difficult life that she's lived that she has not been appreciated by her own family and uh, explains that very clearly and she appeals for her beloved to come she says I don't want to wander around here in the fields forever I want you to come and the advice comes in verse 8 from the best man who says until he comes the best thing is to stay with the shepherds stay there although you think you'd rather be with the groom that is true yet if you stay with the shepherds you'll you'll eventually end up uh, with the great shepherd or with the king so that's how that first song goes it's this uh, discussion particularly between the bridesmaids and the brides a bride Uh, it's very significant that the bridal party is brought in here in this first chapter very quickly because as we said the bride actually represents the ecclesia in total whereas the bridesmaids the virgins represent the individuals and that's made very clear at the beginning so they're not separated so much so that when she says I would like to be with the king they said yeah we'll come with you and so they're very closely brought together with the bride to remind us of the spiritual principle that the bridesmaids are the individual uh, individuals that make up the ecclesia which is the bride so also by the way is the best man in verse 8 Um, the best man that gives his advice on that occasion he's also one with the bride and of course speaks again of us in an individual capacity but in a particular capacity different to the bridesmaids as we'll pick up when we come to it there was a particular role for the best man and he fulfills that in verse 8 so we come back then having a brief idea then of what this is all about it's uh, it's about the, the, uh, the bride particularly her love for her beloved Uh, and the bridesmaids agreeing with that so in verse 2 she makes this appeal and she says let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for thy love is better than wine and because of the savour of thy good ointments that's where we'd stop it there because you've got to link the first phrase of verse 3 with verse 2 she wants to kiss him for two things one is because his love is better than wine and two because of the savour of his good ointments that's the two reasons she gives for wanting to kiss him and then she goes on and starts again with another character of his and she says thy name is as ointment poured forth so she's actually introduced three characteristics here she's talked about his love she's talked about the savour of the good ointments and she's talked about the name so she's brought out three characteristics straight away of the grooms of the bridegroom and three of the characteristics that obviously appealed to her and drew her to him in the first place first place there, there like yes yeah, so if you put a full stop after ointments and start off thy with a capital uh, you'll get the sense of that anybody else got any translations they could read that say that um, similar um, anybody got any here tonight I don't know whether they have um, so 
Yes, RSV. Who's got RSV? Mark. Yes, Mark. Oh, or Alan. Yeah, does it, does it give any break there? How would you read verse 3? No, it's verse 4, verse 3. For your love is better than wine, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Okay, so there you are. That's good, because that clearly defines between the three things. These are three principles clearly brought out. Your love is better than wine, your smell or or savour is like ointment, and your name is as ointment poured out. So uh, that does bring it out quite well. It breaks between those three things. Um, does yours have anything different there, Beryl? No, not really. Okay. When you go to some of the other translations, you do get slight uh, variations, and some of them do help because they'll they'll put a um, uh, they'll, they'll bring it out perhaps a little bit clearer than the authorised would do. Um, I haven't got any particularly. I noted here. I haven't got any particularly alongside that verse, those verses, but uh, I know some of the other translations put it a lot clearer. Okay. So. Uh, first thing we'd notice there is of course she desires a kiss now of course kisses to, to us have probably come down through particularly into our Australian style of life as, as really being things that are more or less exclusively used between uh, a, a couple, between a husband and a wife because between a couple uh, a boy and a girl uh, man and woman and would be, be particularly emphasising perhaps nothing more than their affection for them but kisses of course scripturally play a very large part in scripture and they come down as you, as you pick up your concordance and you look up the word kiss and see the way in which it's used there would be three things I've listed down here that would be seen in a kiss or for which a kiss would be used and you could perhaps write them alongside that verse that they would come to, to, to represent or to show friendship 1 Samuel 20 verse 41 that's of course Jonathan and and um, and David, and of course we're told that the love that Jonathan had for David was greater than that of a man for a woman. The world in their in their filthiness, and because they don't think purely, have taken that up, and of course have referred it to very unchaste things concerning David and and and, uh, and Jonathan. But it's a friendship which was very, very strong between them and that was sealed with a kiss when, remember, Solomon at the, the time when Jonathan actually fired or got his, his servant to fire the arrow and the message was there that David was the Saul was still trying to kill David. It was then that they embraced and kissed. So it's a sign of very great friendship. It's love, we'd say love, but for the sake of this we'd say friendship because there's two men involved. But scripturally and quite rightly it is very true love uh, that is actually uh, shown there in the kiss um, it's chapter 20 verse 41 1 Samuel 20 verse 41 somebody said something there oh right to, sorry ok so 1 Samuel 20 verse 41 um, also I suppose alongside that verse you could put this as well but I've got another verse for this it's a sign of respect um, and I've got the quote there is Psalm 2 verse 1 uh, remember Psalm 2 is it verse 1? sounds wrong it's the end verse isn't it? Uh, kiss the son lest he be angry I reckon that's verse 11 not 1 um, Psalm 2 um, 
Psalm 2 verse 12 Kiss the son lest he be angry It's verse 12 not verse 2 Now there's the idea of respect Um, It was of course It's the psalm which deals of course With the nation submitting to the Lord Jesus Christ In the kingdom age And therefore that king is given as a sign of submission And of respect to the king And the kiss is used there in that sense Uh, It's also used in the sense of honesty In Proverbs 24 and verse 26 and I think that's the verse that says uh, the deceitful kisses of a dishonest man so taking that from the positive side um, it speaks of honesty now I'm sure that if you went through you could list a lot more alongside that if you wanted a full and comprehensive list upon the word kiss but there's a few and those immediately have their, their spiritual connotation in the ecclesia of God because we're not just in the kiss talking purely of emotional love we're talking of a lot of other things as well we're talking of respect we're talking of friendship we're talking of honesty all those principles that must be seen are seen in Christ and must be seen in the bride appreciated by the bride and therefore of course she desires to kiss him uh, the kiss itself being a uh, the, and the idea of the word kiss in the, in the Hebrew anyway means to link to come together and uh, that's of course what a kiss is doing it's an identification with a principle and with, in this case it's an identification with the principles that are seen in the, um, in the groom by the bride now of course spiritually that's our position now although this is talking of the Jewish bride the principle is identical to the Gentile bride as we shall see because this is talking of the Gen- Jewish section we shouldn't isolate these verses and say well this has got nothing to do with us the bride is the same the bride is exactly the same and the qualities of the bride are the same Old and New Testament the difference was the class of people who came into it it was predominantly Jew in the Old Testament and Gentile in the New but the qualifications of the bride are identical and of course therefore we must see it in us and we ask ourselves that very simple question at the very beginning are we desiring to kiss our beloved are we desiring that he would be here or perhaps in our life are there things that we would like to perhaps get out of the way or perhaps we'd like to do before he comes but this word is this is an urgent call by, or an urgent appeal by the bride here that she would like him to now be there with her that she could kiss him and she goes there now to say why it is that she wants to kiss him why she wants to identify with him because she says thy love is better than wine now love as we said is one of the key words to the book if you want to write down perhaps at the top of your page there somewhere um, I'll give you the three words or the three probably can even give you the words three words and their meanings and where they, how many of times they occur this particular word here in chapter 1 and verse 2 is the word uh, Dod D-O-D which is the root word of course for David or Jedediah and it's translated many times in scripture as beloved and it means literally to boil over so it's someone who, who really has an affectionate love it's very affectionate to the extent of boiling and uh, so the word literally means to boil um, if you want the number in Strong's those who like to have that it's 1730 and it's used 37 times in the Song of Solomon right it's used 37 times this word there are three words for love by the way and this is the first of them while you're making up that list you might note the next one which is going to be in uh, verse 3 where it says therefore thy, thy virgins love thee it's a different word because here the emphasis is not so much on the husband-wife relationship these are the virgins 
so it's a different word there uh, have I got it marked down uh, I can't give you the word exactly but it's 157 in Strong's and it's used 17 times in the book and it means affection more than to boil over it's just almost the first word is an uncontrollable love it's someone with a very deep love this one's perhaps the more restrained love of a person nevertheless a true love but we define it as affection used 17 times the next time that the next word that's used is first found in verse 9 where it says I have compared thee O my love and um, that's a word uh, it's 7474 in Strong's it's the word Raya R-A-Y-A just put a question mark on that because I'm saying that from memory um, I haven't got it marked anywhere, but I'm pretty sure it is R-A-Y-A-H or A and it has the idea of um, of a companion a close associate or a close companion it's the word one of the words translated wife in the Old Testament and um, therefore shall a wife uh, husband please unto his wife back in Genesis chapter 3 so it really is a word that relates particularly to a bride so it means a close associate the number is 7474 uh, and it is reused nine times in the book beginning at verse 9 if you want to find out where they are well that's a little bit of work you can do at home get your strongs out or Englishmen's Englishmen's perhaps look up that number and uh, follow it through and you can perhaps colour code those in three colours that is, our, that is all up 63 times that the word love occurs in the Song of Solomon so there's no doubt that love is the theme of the, of the book it's a superlative song about love and this of course is as we said the first time that uh, the word occurs and it's the word which would link immediately with Solomon because Dod is the root word for Jedediah or Yedidiah, the word that Yahweh, the name that Yahweh gave to Solomon himself. So very fitting for the bride to use that of this groom who is of course Solomon. So she talks about his love and it's better than wine. Now the word better there needs to be emphasised because when that's used in scripture it means of course that it's only a symbol of something or there is something better to come. And believe you me, brothers and sisters, that the love that's shown now unto us will fade into insignificance when we get immortality and we're with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and the, 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 but the picture here is of the comparison with love and wine. And wine is, is something which of course was, was seen by the Jew as something that was beneficial, it was, was enjoyable, it was all of those things, yet the love of this one is even greater than that and so it's made to be greater than wine wine therefore in the picture that's presented represents love but the love is even greater than the wine itself now there where that would show up of course very clearly is I believe when we come together every Sunday morning and when we have presented before us on the table wine literal wine but believe you me the love of Christ is far beyond that wine that's only, a, that's only an emblem of it and remember the Lord Jesus Christ did say that that this is an emblem or a sign of my love it wasn't his love it was, his love was greater than that wine and so there's a, there is an echo here of the, the death of the beloved the Lord Jesus Christ wine being that which represents the love that he had uh, for his bride 
it's interesting that when we come down to the word ointments in verse 3 that word ointments is the word shemen the word one of the words in the Hebrew for olive oil it's the word for oil but it is often used of olive oil and of course um, it reminds us that it was in the garden of Gath Shemen that the Lord Jesus Christ was to meet his, his last was to, to finally face the enemy and was to overcome completely in the garden of Gath Shemen and Gath of course is the, is the word for wine for a wine press that gives wine and Shemen is the Hebrew word for, for, the, for um, uh, olive oil or oil so the word Gethsemane or Gethsemane actually literally means a wine press a wine press full of olive oil a beautiful symbol of Christ but it's bringing together those two ideas of wine and oil and that's exactly what we have here so those who would know the word Gethsemane in the New Testament would immediately link with this principle in Song of Solomon this is his death it's talking about this is a love that is greater than any man has ever given he go what greater love hath man than this than he give his life for his friends and that was summed up in the Garden of Gethsemane where wine and oil are brought together that's straight out of the Song of Solomon I mentioned before uh, and you probably get sick of hearing it but just how much I'm impressed with principles that come out of Song of Solomon a book that people tend to put aside and say well there's not much in it it's just a little story has all of these beautiful principles in it that here straight away you pick up wine and oil linked together and that principle is found through scriptures representing Christ but ends up there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Interesting that Noel and I were working with a, with a fellow, were working at a house where a fellow was, um, uh, what was he, Polish or something? Um, Pol- uh, uh, Hungarian. Yeah, Hungarian. And he, we're ta- talking, um, <laughs> uh, but don't tell Keith this, but talking quite a bit about the truth. Um, um, while we're supposed to be working but he, he um, was very very interested in, in the Christadelphians police and so forth and he asked the question he, he, I've forgotten how it came up but he said um, uh, uh, something about Gethsemane and he said of course you wouldn't know what that means that, uh, he said that's, um, that's in my Bible Gethsemane you'd know it as Gethsemane which was beautiful because uh, because of studies I've done on that section of Christ I usually refer to it to the garden of Gethsemane not knowing that that's how in fact it's interpreted in some Bibles so in his Bible, whatever language it is, he's got it in, it's actually interpreted as the Garden of Gethsemane, not the Garden of Gethsemane. And we lose a lot, of course, by anglicising it, because we say, what's Gethsemane mean? But when you get those two words, Gath and Shemin, together, um, it's, it's all there. Um, just an aside, but of course that's the chapter that we're introduced to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Gethsemane is the, is the chapter that tells us that Christ went a stone's throw away from the disciples and prayed. Where was a stone thrown? But by the Goliath and Gath. And there's a link with Gath. And it was the battle of it was the battle of Goliath all over again, taking place in the garden of Gath Shemin. Uh, but that's an aside. But here we've got those two words brought together, wine and ointment. And wine is becomes another feature of the book. It's a bit of a theme in the book itself. If you like to mark down that word the phrase wine or the reference to wine to in verse um, verse 2 that same word is picked up again in verse 12 of this chapter chapter 2 verse 13 chapter 4 verse 10 and 11 and chapter 7 verses 8 and 13 I'll go through them again it's in verse 12 chapter 2 verse 13 chapter 4 verses 10 and 11 
and chapter 7 verses 8 and 13 all talk of wine and it's always in the context actually of respect and appreciation it's in the context of respect and appreciation and that's how the wine is, um, is often used uh, in scripture um, so uh, it shows the, the love and respect for the, for the um, right sorry I'm misleading you misleading you altogether um, it's not the word wine occurs in those places I've got lines drawn to words in my in my um, my copy here which I should have perhaps made a little bit clearer it's the word savour in verse 3 so just link it to the word savour in verse 3 forget what I said about that relating to wine at this stage the phrase savour there is found in those verses that I told you and that's of course the symbol of respect wine as we've already said is a symbol of love alright so his love is better than wine that's her first thought as to why she wants to kiss him then we come to the second thought in verse 3 because of the savour of thy good ointments now as we said that word savour is a bit of a theme in the book and it takes you through those verses that I gave you verse 12, 2, 13, 4, 10 and 11, 7, 8 and 13 each time that that occurs it has the idea of respect or appreciation now that's how it's used in the Old Testament anyway the word savour is the word smell and you could perhaps link probably remember the occasion when Moses went before Pharaoh the first time and when he came back to face Israel again when he went before Pharaoh and came back to Israel Israel said to him why have you gone in there to Pharaoh you will make our name stink in his nose and that's the word savour here so the idea is smell and they said this is used in a negative sense but the idea is they were saying we'll lose respect with Pharaoh you'll upset Pharaoh and we'll be punished for it and of course they were in effect um, so they picked up the point but that's the idea that's what this word is referring to that's how it's used in a spiritual sense a spiritual sense sorry not scent a spiritual sense the word savour or scent um, is used in this idea of respect or appreciation now we can pick that up if you just go through in the Song of Solomon there we'll pick up the quotations in chapter 4 we haven't got time to look at them all but those I gave you in chapter 4 um, where the word occurs it occurs a couple of times uh, verse 10 and verse 11 and in chapter 4 and verse 10 uh, the groom is speaking of the bride this time how fair is thy love my sister my spouse how much better is thy love than wine and the smell of thine ointments than all spices and that word smell there is our word savour the savour of thine ointments than all spices so it's a beautiful verse because it's the, it's the opposite person talking in chapter 1 it's the groom talking about the, the bride talking about the groom in this chapter it's the groom talking about the bride so she is truly a reflection of him and the ointments that she, she appreciates in him are of course duplicated in her and again in that, uh, that same chapter as we said in verse 11 the word occurs again thy lips O my spouse drop as the honeycomb honey and milk are under thy tongue and the smell of thy garments is like the smell of Lebanon and that word smell is the word savour uh, back in verse 3 so just as she back in the first chapter and verse 3 appreciates the smell 
of her beloved um, so he of course appreciates that she also gives off an odour which is uh, acceptable to him it's the word of course in the Old Testament that is always used of the sacrifices under the law now whenever they offered a sacrifice and it occurs probably a hundred times through the book of uh, Leviticus uh, Leviticus particularly that they, they rose unto Yahweh as a strong saver and that's the word here it was an acceptable smell unto Yahweh so uh, again a very fitting word to be used here by the bride of the groom because who was who represented in all those sacrifices under the law other than the Lord Jesus Christ so here's an identification with the law we're going to pick this up time and time again here's an identification if you like of this person whoever he is is the sacrifices under the law because he has a savour that is sweet and so the, the beloved is the one that's represented and the savour or the smell it says is like good oil or good ointment as we said that's the word shimen that's used there but the oil of course in the Old Testament again is used uh, as re- representing certain things so we can have another little list now alongside verse 3 that ointment is used in these senses in these, in these uh, ways in the Old Testament with these principles ointment can, is, of course is used primarily for sanctification remember it was anointing oil that was anointed upon um, upon the high priest it was anointed upon the king David himself and Solomon were anointed by Shemen anointed by oil and when that was poured out what it was a symbol of was sanctification or separation so that's our first point that oil is used uh, as a representation of sanctification or separation and how true that is of the one that we have as our beloved Uh, there is none more separate than him and he expects his bride to be likewise it also represents wise counsel in Proverbs 27 and verse 9 wise counsel is like oil and here of course again we can pick it up quite clearly with this beloved this is Christ we're talking about you can't get wiser counsel from him the people in the it was recorded in the New Testament that they said of him no man ever spake like this man he was one with very wise counsel so the term ointment is very applicable to him it's used as a sign of unity in Psalm 133 and verse 2 where oil is given there as a symbol of unity um, while you're writing it down I can perhaps actually quote it for you so that we get the, the context 133 and uh, verse 2 verse 1 because we know the quote we've got a hymn based on it behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity it is like the precious ointment and there's our word the precious oil that ran down upon the beard even Aaron's beard that went down to the skirts of his garments so there's the word Shemen used in the context of unity of oneness which of course is is what Christ expects he's one with his father and we are to be one with him and of course gladness is the other one Psalm 45 verse 7 where uh, Yahweh has anointed me with the oil of gladness the Shemen of gladness so there again, again these are themes young people particularly but brothers and sisters you can take yourselves pick up the word Shemen trace it out and you can have a list there probably you know a dozen long in your margin of what it represents but there's a few to get you started that Shemen oil can represent uh, represent sanctification wise counsel gladness unity 
it's used for healing as well no thought just came to me but of course that word shaman is used as an anointed as as healing um, so they're all principles that are seen in the in the olive oil and all seen of course in the Lord Jesus Christ so really when she says because of the savour of thy good ointment she's not talking literally it's a poem and she's saying I appreciate you because of the smell of all your qualities all your qualities have wafted out and here they are there's gladness there's separateness all of these things now we have to again examine ourselves we're the bride do we see those qualities in Christ do we see and appreciate them this bride did and Israel as we were were expected to see that in God and in his son the next thing that she mentions that third point is thy name is as ointment poured forth now that word ointment again is that same word shemen so now but now she says the, the, the name is like that his name now it's obvious isn't it a little, little box you can put alongside that firstly the name of the groom becomes the name of the bride where would we go to for that where would we go to for that a beautiful quote Yeah, exactly. Revelation 19. The Revelation 19 is the chapter, of course, that deals with the bride. She's made herself ready. She's married. Blessed are they that come to the marriage supper of the Lamb. As it goes on in verse 12 and verse 13, it talks about his name that is known to him only. And the context, of course, would tell us that that's the name that was bestowed upon the bride. Earlier in the chapter, and this is what Mark's thinking of, earlier, of course, in the book of Revelation, we have that name written upon our foreheads which is the name that no, what's the quote you know who's familiar with Revelation uh, a name above every other name what's that write upon him my new name your name yeah um, where's that chapter 3 2 three, uh, 3 or 4 somewhere in there in the, in the letters to the Ecclesias that would be the one to go to first so there's the promise that we'll be, have a new name what is the name? well it's the name in Revelation 19 of the beloved the one to whom we're married and we'll, we'll have his name bestowed upon us later on of course in verse 13 it says and his name is the word of God that sums up everything doesn't it? Christ was the word made flesh and his name is the word therefore we if we're going to bear that name have to also be the word of God personified so our first point when we talk about names in the context of husband and wife is that the wife takes on the name of the husband as we will we are told so many times in, in the Old Testament particularly that we are to love the name of God some of the young ones here of course would, would, would uh, and in a sense very fortunately not been involved in the unfortunate and sometimes very very uh, difficult and, and hurtful uh, debate that took place in the Ecclesia some years ago about whether we should use or have it know the name of God and at that time being a youngster I was in my teens and, and um, every time I came across a verse in scripture where it mentioned God's name and its importance I jotted it down in the back of my Bible I can even prove it I've got on the back page here it looks I know a bit scrummy but you probably can't even see it but in pencil in Mark says about Oh, probably 50 quotations out of the Old Testament that talk about the love of the, the fact that the greatness of Yahweh's name and the fact that we should love it and going back to that list I've picked out a couple here um, and I've put down, down, down here under the heading of that we should love the name just like the bride should love the name because that's what it says she here loves him because of his name Isaiah 26 verse 8 
Psalm 91 verse 14 Psalm 69 verse 36 Alright, now I want you to just turn to that first one because it's a very beautiful one in Isaiah 26 Um, and probably is a good one to just make a little bit of a notation in your Bible about too and it makes a bit of difference to the understanding of this verse Isaiah 26 and verse 8 interesting principle it introduces in the way of thy judgments O Yahweh we wait it's not have waited it's future tense in the way of thy judgments O Yahweh we wait it's saying that the beloved here that these saints are waiting for the judgments of God Paul takes it up in the New Testament and says he's waiting for Christ's judgment seat now we don't often look at the judgment seat in that context we say well judgment seat is a place I don't want to be at I want to be in the kingdom but Paul says positively he wants to be at the judgment seat because he understood as we all should that it's there at the judgment seat that God in his mercy is prepared to accept us if we didn't have judgment seat we wouldn't have life and God will do at the judgment seat what you and I have never been able to do for ourselves properly put ourselves 100% to judgment to judge the inward thoughts we say we do but we don't there's not a person here that does honestly in every detail come before their God and clear everything before him it's not in flesh to do that and so we need the judgment seat so that God will bring out of us those hidden things that's what purification is all about that's what uh, Malachi is all about when the, the metals will be purified and the impurities will be brought out not that they will be destroyed but that it might come out the purer and we could never be pure without the judgment seat and you know as well as I do and we see it particularly those of us older and children in the younger ones as they perhaps go up into their teens how much of a relief it is when issues are brought to our attention an issue particularly that we're well aware of in our life and it's been pushed underneath the surface and when it finally comes to the open there's a sense of relief it's brought out in the open it can be dealt with and that's what Christ will do for us we can't do it in the flesh we can't do it for ourselves completely but Christ will take us at the judgment seat he'll do it for us he'll bring it all out where we can't deny it we've got to face it and it's in the mercy of God that he does that so here the righteous are spoken of as looking forward to the judgment so they're waiting for the judgments for thee the desire of our soul it says is to thy name and to the remembrance of thee so the desire of these righteous are to the name of God because that's the name that's going to be bestowed upon them I have in the margin the RSV now somebody had RSV was yours Alan RSV uh, have you got it open there have you got it open at, at Isaiah if you haven't it doesn't matter I can read it here um, it's just a matter of checking it I suppose but I've got it rightly written down thy memorial name is the desire of our soul Right, see how it puts it very beautifully thy memorial name is the desire of our soul that of course links it very beautifully with Song of Solomon she loved his name <coughs> is that right Al? have you picked it up yet? <coughs> Isaiah 26 verse, nine, uh, verse 8 in the path of God's judgments O Lord we wait for thee thy memorial name is 
Yeah, very beautiful, isn't it? It's a lovely way of expressing it. And uh, the other ones that we've got there, Psalm 91 and 69, I won't turn up, but it's in a similar context, similar vein, that God's God is looking over those who love his name. Now, you can't love a name if you don't understand it. And the exhortation out of that in Song of Solomon would be that, that we have to understand the name of God. We're going to take it on as our accepted name, then we have to know what it means. And of course that name is, I will be manifested in a multitude. That's the name. Now that's a name, of course, that is going to also include us. While you're in the next point, you could, if you're writing that little note down, a little box about the love of the name, um, you could put next comment is the Gentiles also are called into that name. Now that comes out of Isaiah as well. Isaiah 56 and verse 6. And we can I'll turn it up while we're there in Isaiah. And where would we go to in the New Testament? What quote would we put down for Gentiles are called by his name? God is calling out of the Gentiles a people for his name. Acts 15, right. Acts 15 and verse 14. God is calling out of the Gentiles a people for his name. So while this is the Jewish bride here, the principle is identically the same for the Gentile. She is a class of people who love and desire to be called by his name. Now Isaiah 26 and verse... uh, verse, um, What did I say? Sorry, 56. Isaiah 56 and verse 6. Also, the sons of the stranger that join themselves to Yahweh to serve him and to love the name of Yahweh to be his servants everyone that keepeth the Sabbath from polluting it and taketh hold of my covenant even them will I bring to my holy mountain it's talking about the sons of the strangers that join themselves to Yahweh and because they love the name I'll bring them to my holy mountain so there is a call the Gentiles have been promised even in the Old Testament of being linked to the name of God yeah I saw the signal (laughs) it's alright we did did talk um, in an earlier meeting it would try and round off around about 9 or close to 9 o'clock and, and the chairman just went like that with his hand so it's a symbol it, it, look I've got a watch actually it tells me it's a very nice watch um, right um, the um, yeah ok um, also on that list you could put down Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1 a good name a good name is like ointment and that would be Solomon's thought see Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes he also wrote Song of Solomon of course so when he says the savour of thy, uh, thy name is as ointment poured out he says the same thing in Ecclesiastes 7 verse 1 but he puts it the other way around a good name is like ointment poured out so he's saying the same expression in Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1 and let's just then finish off verse 3 therefore she says because of all these qualities therefore do thy virgins love thee and so now the the bride is talking of her her bridal party the virgins and she says just as I love you the virgins also love you for those same qualities and there's our first link that we're talking of the same person we're talking the bride who loves the beloved the virgins love the beloved they're brought together in this verse and so she says to, to uh, concerning her beloved for the same reasons I love him the virgins do so what that means in simple terms brothers, is this that when you hear like we're here at a class as an ecclesia and we talk about the qualities of the truth and the qualities of our beloved and so forth when we go out that door we've got to feel exactly the same way 
it's not that we feel that way when we're as a bride in the ecclesia but we don't feel that, like that when we're virgins on our own we feel that way when we're on our own and that's of course the strong exhortation is that if we could be whipped up to some enthusiasm and to, to some love for God and his word in a meeting we've got to do that individually too as virgins we have to have that same love that we can whip up as a community so both the bride and the virgins <coughs> love her the word virgins is the Hebrew word for hidden or veiled and would emphasise particularly a class of people of course who have separated themselves that's what the word virgin is all about and uh, so that would be the emphasis upon the word virgin uh, the bride, the emphasis is more for the preparation and, and the love of, of her for her groom the virgins are introduced with the principle particularly of, of, um, of separateness and that's why how virgins of course are used both in the New and the Old Testament now I've got a, a comment alongside that that love is the magnet of love I don't know where I got that from but it's the truth love is the magnet of love you love someone and you'll get it reciprocal you'll get it back if you hate someone it's very hard to get love in return so love becomes a magnet of love and in the ecclesia the bride there is love for the groom and that has drawn the bridesmaids as well so in the next verse when she says I want to go after him they say we're going to come with you and they're drawn by that same love and so the love that's seen and it goes the other way around doesn't it if we love God and we love his word then we have to, we have to bring that love into the ecclesia of God and as a community help to draw that community towards the Lord Jesus Christ just as it's true that as a community we should love him as individuals we can play our part in making that community or helping that community to love uh, the beloved and there's no doubt in the natural if you could just picture these girls coming together and the bride and the bridesmaids and all talking about the one man you know it doesn't happen today I mean usually I suppose the bridesmaids are probably saying to the bride something like well I wouldn't have married him um, I don't see what you see in him but this is, a, this is a, a, a bridal party in which the bridesmaids and the bride all want to be joined to him and they're all standing around talking and saying uh, here's his qualities and they're arguing almost amongst themselves and saying well I see this in him and other bridesmaids saying I see this in him bride says well I appreciate this principle and they're all joining together what a lovely symbol of the ecclesia of God when we come together and we talk the word of God brethren and sisters amongst ourselves that's what we're doing we're enthusing each other and uh, that's what the bridesmaids do so we'll end our, conversation, uh, our study there tonight at verse 3 um, but very beautiful in its beginning that we've got the bride expressing her love for her beloved what it is that attracts her and we ask ourselves is that the same thing that attracts us to the Lord Jesus Christ and secondly of course now the bridesmaids are brought into it and they as individuals play their part in, in exciting the bride um, and in fact when the bride later on gets down and says oh you know he's away he's, he's not here and, I, and she gets down it's the bridesmaids that whip her up again with enthusiasm and say but he'll be here soon he's coming and they lift her up all the time a very beautiful symbol these bridesmaids and represent our role in the ecclesia of God